All right, well, good morning. This morning, we are continuing our series looking at uh, church membership. And it's been my prayer that this series uh, would be unifying and strengthening for us as a church family. Uh, I'm also praying that it would be a little bit like a fresh start for us as we continue to move forward. Uh, in a few weeks, at the end of the series, every current member will have a chance to kind of recommit themselves to membership and say, yes, this is the church that I want to be a part of. This is where I am locked and loaded and in. And if you're not a member, it's been my prayer that this series would help you understand this is what it means to be a church member. This is what we as a church believe and that you would prayerfully consider uh, officially joining us in membership. Uh, these messages uh, are also going to kind of help inform us uh, or inform a new members class or small group. This way, as the Lord continues to bring people into the church and as they join in membership, uh, we'll all be on the same page together as one body. Uh, we said at the beginning of this series that it's going to answer three questions. And in the first message, we looked at what is church membership? And we looked at the definition of a church, and we looked at what it means to be a local expression of the universal body of Christ. And then the second question that we've been answering these past several weeks is what do we believe as members? And we've been working through our church's statement of faith. Last week, we looked at the ordinances, baptism and communion, and we talked about this is why we don't baptize infants. We looked at this is why communion is not the literal uh, body and blood of Jesus. It's how we remember the sacrifice of Christ. It is not the continual sacrifice of Christ. And then the final question that we're going to answer is how do we as church members live? And when we answer that question, we'll be looking at the membership covenant. When we join, this is what we're agreeing to do as we as a church body seek to move forward and as we seek to reflect Christ in our community. And this morning... We're going to look at what we believe about the world to come. Now, our church's statement of faith is by no means meant to be a super deep dive into every nuance of theology. That would be a book this big. Uh, the, member, uh, the statement of faith is meant to be a much simpler, basic outline of what we believe as a church. And as we've looked at each part of that statement of faith, my goal has been to explain that statement, not to branch out from that statement. Um, We've been looking at the core doctrine of what our church believes. Uh, there are other doctrines that throughout Scripture that we should study and that we should know and that we should be assured of that are not as foundational to our faith that many Christians can and do disagree on, and that's perfectly okay, and we can all still be members of the same church. Now, this morning's message on the world to come is probably going to prove to be the most challenging in that regard. Because how many of you realize when you read about end times in the Bible, it's not always super clear. <laughs> There's a lot of room for Christians to see things differently about the doctrine of end times. And so I'm going to start with our church's statement of faith this morning. Uh, in the introduction, I'll talk a little bit about some of the different views, but we're not going to do a deep dive into those. So here's our statement of faith. We believe that at the climax of history, Jesus will return to earth to establish his kingdom. We believe in the resurrection of the dead and the final judgment. Those found in Christ will be raised to glorification to forever live and reign with Christ to the eternal glory of God. Satan and his demons and all who have rejected Jesus will be forever separated from God and endure eternal punishment. Evil will forever be abolished and a new heaven and earth will be established to God's eternal glory and his people's eternal delight. So my goal this morning is to unpack this statement and not to do a uh, deep dive into all the different views people have of end times. Uh, our statement of faith and what we're going to look at this morning is the foundation that most evangelical Christians will believe on. 
Oftentimes when we look at the doctrine of end times, we get so focused on the different views and the possibilities that we end up dividing into different camps when in reality, a subject of the end times should unite us in the main purpose of Jesus wins. Jesus is coming back. Jesus will wipe out evil. And we often miss that idea when we get hung up on the different nuances and things. So this morning, we're going to start with the return of Christ. Because this is something evangelical Christianity all agrees on. Christ will return in bodily form. In this sermon, we're not going to take a, a, a deep look into the tribulation. Say, what's the tribulation? That's a period of persecution and judgment on the world. This period takes up a large portion of the book of Revelation because there's room in our membership to have different views of what the tribulation will be. We're also not going to take a super in-depth look at the millennial reign. I'll highlight some of the different views of that in just a minute. That's the period of time where Jesus rules with the saints on earth in which Satan is bound. We see this in Revelation chapter number 20, but the final judgment hasn't happened yet. Now, there are three different views of the millennial reign that I want to highlight, and I want to highlight these because I want us to know that if you have this view, you could still be a member of our church, and that's perfectly fine. Uh, the first, or one of the main views of the millennial reign is what's considered amillennialism, which believes the millennial reign is figurative for the church age and that there's no future millennium. The second view is postmillennialism, which believes the return of Christ will happen after or post the millennial reign. So we're in the church age right now. The church age will just sort of morph into the millennial reign. And then after the millennial reign, Christ will return. And then the third uh, main view of the millennial reign is premillennialism, which believes the return of Christ will happen before or pre the millennial reign. Now, within premillennialism, there's even a few different camps of what this will look like. There's dispensational premillennialism, which holds that the return of Christ happens in two parts. The first part will be the rapture of the saints, which happens before the seven-year tribulation. Then the second part of Christ's return is when he will physically return to earth, and that'll happen after the tribulation. Then there's historic premillennialism, or classic premillennialism, which views that the rapture and the bodily return of Jesus, of Jesus are actually the same event, and they happen following the seven-year tribulation period. And my, my goal for bringing these up is, it's okay if you believe any one of those. You could still be a member of our church as long as you've done a deep study of God's word, you've studied the Bible, and you've, based on your study of the Bible, you've convinced of this position. Your position is based on the study of God's word, not just what some guy on YouTube said that you're like, oh, okay, I like that one. I would also encourage us to make sure that our beliefs on end times uh, are not cause for division with our fellow church members. The study of end times or eschatology is not as clear as other doctrines, such as the deity of Christ or justification by faith alone. There's room to have some different viewpoints of how this is all going to play out. If you consider yourself a covenant theologian and you're a post-millennialist because of that, don't go calling your dispensational premillennial brother in Christ a heretic, okay? <laughs> That's not the goal of what we're looking at. And also, don't allow these differences to distract you or to cause you to lose focus from what the Bible calls our blessed hope, and that's the return of Jesus. A study of end times should give us faith. It should strengthen us. It should encourage us to live boldly in the day and age that we live in. It should be our rallying call, what we all look forward to, not cause for division. I'd also say this. If you haven't studied this out, let me encourage you to. Dive into God's word and see what it says. Come to your own conclusion. 
Study the word of God. Don't let the fact that maybe it's confusing or, man, this chapter in Revelation, I don't know what to do with it. I mean, welcome to the club. Um, but don't let the fact that it maybe seems a little intimidating to keep you from studying it and coming to your own conclusion. Because I'll say this, a study of the end times should fuel our hope. So if you have a Bible, let me encourage you to grab it, turn to Revelation chapter number 21. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one, a black hardcover one, floating around on the pew somewhere close by to you. Uh, so let me encourage you to grab one. If you're using it on device, Revelation chapter 21. If you're sitting here and you're wondering, Pastor Nick, which of those three do you hold to? Uh, download my notes. I put it in a footnote after the service or just ask me and I'll tell you. Uh, but if you have a Bible, let me encourage you to go to Revelation 21. Uh, this chapter of Revelation actually takes place after the final judgment. And it begins with the new heaven and the new earth, which we will discuss later in this morning's message. It's an incredibly encouraging passage of scripture. And I wanted to read this whole chapter as we start our message this morning, because this chapter reminds us of why eschatology is actually a very hopeful study. So hopefully you're there. Let's read Revelation chapter number 21. The Bible says, beginning in verse number one, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne, Look, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more. Because the previous things have been passed away. Then the one seated on the throne said, Look, I am making everything new. He also said, Write, because these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will freely give to the thirsty from the spring of the water of life. The one who conquers will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But the cowards, faithless, detestable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their share will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then one of the seven angels who held, one of, who held the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came and spoke with me. Come. I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. He then carried me in the way of the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, arrayed with God's glory. Her radiance was like a precious jewel, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. The city had a massive high wall with 12 gates. Twelve angels were at the gates. The names of the 12 tribes of Israel's sons were inscribed on the gates. There were three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. The city wall had 12 foundations, and the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb were on the foundations. The then the one who spoke with me had a golden measuring rod to measure the city, its gates, and its walls. The city is laid out in a square. Its length and width are the same. He measured the city with the rod at 12,000 stadia. Its length, width, and height are all equal. Then he measured its wall, 144 cubits, according to human measurement, which the angel used. 
The building material of its own of its wall was jasper, and the city was pure gold, clear as glass. The foundations of the city wall were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first foundation is jasper, the second sapphire, the third chal- chalcedony, sorry, <laughs> the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrys- chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates are twelve pearls. Each individual gate was made of a single pearl. The main street of the city was pure gold, transparent as glass. I did not see a temple in it, because the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. The city did not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, because the glory of God illuminates it. And its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Its city, its gates will never close by day, because it will never be night there. They will bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. Nothing unclean will ever enter into it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those written in the Lamb's book of life. Let's pray. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would anoint the preaching of your word this morning and that it would be to us good news. I pray that it would strengthen us, that it would be liberty to those who are in bondage, that it would be liberty to those who are held captive in their sin. And I pray that as we consider your word, your spirit would open our eyes to understand it and that your word would be life to us. As we consider this morning what's going to happen at the end of the age, or really the beginning of the age, I pray that it would be to us good news. I pray to us that it would strengthen our faith. I pray to us that it would cause us to leave here desiring to live holy and godly and that it would cause in our hearts there to be an earnest desire, Lord, that hastening that Peter talks about, this earnest desire to live for eternity because that is what really matters. We ask this all in your name. Amen. As we jump into our first point this morning, I kind of want to back up on the end times timeline and we're going to start with the return of Christ, the return of Christ. Now, uh, the return of Christ is talked about in many passages throughout the New Testament, uh, but perhaps one of the most well-known passages to deal with it is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16, 17, and 18, which say, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, and with the archangel's voice, and the trumpet of God, and the dead of Christ will rise first. Then we who are still alive, who are left, will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. After Jesus descended into heaven, after his earthly ministries, and the disciples are very understandably just caught kind of gawking. Imagine, Jesus is standing there in front of you one moment, he's talking to you, and as he's talking, he just slowly goes up, and there he goes. I mean, we'd all be standing there gawking, right? Well, as they're standing there, gawking in heaven, just flabbergasted and amazed at what just happened, Two angels appear to them. And we see in Acts chapter 1, verse 11, that these two angels tell the disciples, Hey, uh, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? It's one of those questions scriptures ask that I'm kind of like, (laughs) it should be obvious why they're standing there gazing up into heaven. But they go on to say, This same man, Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, 
he will come in the same way that you have seen him going into heaven. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 27, For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. These verses help us understand that the return of Jesus to earth will be a sudden and a literal return. When the angel said he's going to come back in the same way, they met in bodily form, physical form, a form that you can touch and that you can feel and that you can see. And according to what Jesus says in Matthew, we know it's going to be quick. It's going to be a sudden and literal return. I mean, think about that with me. The man Jesus, the man who walked on this earth for 33 years, who healed the sick, who raised the dead, who did miracle after miracle after miracle, he is going to return to earth in the way that we saw him on earth. Now, regardless of your view of eschatology, that's an awesome event. Jesus, the man Jesus returning to earth. Titus says in chapter 2, verses 11 through 13, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all peoples, instructing us to deny godliness and worldly lusts, and to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in the present age, while we wait for the blessed hope. What's the blessed hope, Titus? The appearing, or Paul, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The return of Christ is our blessed hope. This is the moment that we are waiting for, the bodily return of Jesus. And as we look at Scripture, we also learn that it's at this moment that we receive our glorified bodies. We saw this in verse 16 of 1 Thessalonians 4. With the trumpet of God, then the dead in Christ will rise first. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 51 through 53, Listen, I'm telling you a mystery. We will not all fall asleep, but we will all be changed. In the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible. So this moment Jesus returns, the first thing that happens is the dead in Christ, those saints that have died before his return, which will probably be us, but we don't know, those that are dead in Christ will be raised incorruptible. They will be physically raised back to life. They will come out of their tombs with their glorified body. And then Paul says, then we will all be changed. So then after the dead in Christ arise, the rest of us who are believers but still alive, we will all be raised. We will receive our glorified body. Paul goes on, for this corruptible body must be clothed with incorruptibility. And this mortal body must be clothed with immortality. And then, of course, 1 Thessalonians says that we will forever be with the Lord from that moment. So if you're a believer who passes away before the return of Christ, your spirit goes to heaven. We know your body stays in the earth because it gets buried right? That body ain't coming out of that grave yet. This is physical. This is a literal thing that you see and touch and feel. When you die before the return of Christ, your spirit goes to heaven, but your body stays in the ground. We see this in 2 Corinthians 5 eight, where Paul says, to be away from the body is to be at home with the Lord. So when a believer dies, their spirit goes up to heaven to be with Jesus. When you're absent from your body, that's your physical death. You go home to be with Jesus. In his book, Heaven, Randy Alcorn calls this the intermediate heaven. We know there's a new one coming, but when we die and go to heaven, that's our spirit, and it goes to, I think it's a helpful phrase, the intermediate heaven. Now, in the intermediate heaven, we may have some type of physical body. We don't really know. We can think maybe we will based on Revelation 6. In Revelation 6, the souls of the martyrs are crying out to Jesus for justice. They see injustice happening on the earth, and they cry out to Jesus, Lord, how long until you judge the earth? 
And in response to their crying out for Jesus, these souls are crying out. Revelation is clear that they are souls crying out. In response to them crying out for Jesus or for justice, Jesus gives them a white robe and tells them to rest a little bit longer. Now, I don't know if they can put those robes on or not. The Bible doesn't say they put them on. They maybe are just holding on to them until they get their glorified body. We don't know. But we don't. So maybe there's a physical body. Maybe there's not. We don't know. Uh, we were looking at this passage a year or so ago in, one of my, uh, in a small group, and one of the ladies pointed out, see, even Jesus thinks new clothes make everything better. Um, now, again, this is all hypothetical. We don't know. So when you die, your spirit goes to heaven. We know that because the Bible is very clear about that. But we don't know what our physical state will be. It might just be like a soul. You might get a temporary physical body. We don't know. But what we do know is that when Christ returns, that is when we receive our glorified body. A glorified body is a physical body that you can see and touch just like they will look like just like they look now, but it'll be perfect. It'll be glorified. It'll be incorruptible, untainted by death. That's what happens at the moment Christ returns, and that is what Paul says in Titus is our blessed hope. Now, depending on a person's view of eschatology, there's some differing opinions on what happens around this same time, right? So the premillennial view will teach us that immediately before Christ's return at the end of the tribulation, the city of Babylon falls. And in response to the city of Babylon falling in Revelation 19, all of heaven celebrates with the marriage supper of the Lamb. And then after the marriage supper of the Lamb, Christ returns. And at the return of Christ, he defeats the Antichrist and his armies. They are wiped out. They are done for. And then Satan is bound for a thousand years, which ushers in the millennial reign, which is maybe literal, maybe not, but it's a thousand-year reign where Jesus rules and reigns on the earth with the saints. Now, after the millennial reign, Satan is loosed. He deceives many. There's another great war. It's Gog and Magog and all the nations that Satan's deceived. He leads this battle against Jesus, and Jesus decisively wipes him out. And the angelic host binds Satan, and they cast him into the pit forever and ever. Now, if you're an amillennial or postmillennial, uh, the return of Christ is immediately followed by the final judgment. Now, this is no less uh, dramatic or awesome if that's your belief. Because if you're post-millennial or millennial, you believe Jesus returns. And at the moment of his return, his glory wipes out everything and ushers in the final judgment. So like we said at the beginning of the message, you can be a member and believe any one of those views on what happens next. In fact, turn to Revelation 20. If, if you've got your Bible, I want to read verses 7 through 10. Because this kind of shows us this battle right before the return of the Lord. This is according to the premillennial view. You're probably starting to figure out which one I'm in, uh, but that's okay. Revelation 20, verse 7, when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison, and he will go out to deceive the nations at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them up for battle. By the way, Russia and Ukraine is probably not Gog and Magog, so if you're blasting that all over Facebook, calm down. This is after the millennial reign, folks. Their number is like the sand of the sea. They came up across the breadth in the earth and surrounded the encampment of the saints, the beloved city. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed them. I mean, that's pretty amazing. So if you're a post-millennial or amillennial, this is when Jesus returns, fire goes out and consumes everybody. If you're pre-millennial, this is after the millennial reign, this battle has risen up and Jesus, his glory and fire just wipes everything out. 
The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Verse 11, then I saw a great throne and one seated on it. Earth and heaven fled from its presence and no place was found for them. So this takes us right into the final judgment. The final judgment. Now, starting in verse number 11, if we continue reading through verse 15. Verse 11, then I saw a great white throne. So whether it's a battle or the return of Christ, the glory of God just blasts. And the shockwaves of it defeat everything. And as the glory of God blasts out, earth is consumed. The sea is consumed and just throws up its dead. The earth throws up its dead. And it's like nothing can stand before the glory of God as its shockwaves just ripple across. Creation, everything. I also saw the dead and the great and the small standing before the throne and the books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by what was written in the books. Then the sea gave up the dead that were in it and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. Each one was judged according to their works. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, while this final judgment is sobering, it's very straightforward. Every, every end view or view of end times agrees with this. It would seem that this is the moment that the current earth and heaven pass away. Verse 11 says that heaven and earth literally flee God's presence. Then in chapter 21, we see that they're already gone. 21 verse 1, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and earth had passed away. So it seems like at the moment of this final judgment, as the glory of God shoots out and ripples out across creation, it literally just wipes everything out in front of it. Peter puts it rather flamboyantly in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 through 13. The Bible says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. On that day, the heavens will pass away with a loud noise. The elements will burn and be dissolved, and the earth and the works on it will be disclosed. Since all these things are to be dissolved in this way, it is clear what sort of people you should be in holy conduct and godliness as you wait for the day of God and hastens his coming. Because of that day, the heavens will be dissolved with fire and the elements will melt with heat. But based on this promise, we wait for the new heaven and the new earth where righteousness dwells. By the way, side note, has nothing to do with eschatology. Don't use this verse in Peter to uh, take bad care of the environment, right? Like, oh, it's all going to burn anyway, so let's just trash it now. No, this is the only one we got till we get the new heaven one, so let's be good stewards of it. That was the first command we were given in Genesis, okay? That has nothing to do with anything. That's just a little rabbit trail. Anyways, but it would appear that at the final judgment, nothing can stand before the one seated on the great, great white throne. I mean, this is an amazing picture. It's sobering, yes. It's a little scary, yes. But the glory of God just sends out shockwaves. And nothing, not the earth, not even heaven, not even hell, not even death, nothing can stand before the great white throne. Now, this is me using my imagination, but it would seem like at the moment this all happens, there's just nothing but the great white throne and all of humanity before it. All the angelic hosts, just 
wipes everything out, and it's just humanity, the angelic hosts, and the great white throne, God. Now at this point, all of the unbelieving dead are raised to life. The sea then gives up all the dead that are in her, and each person is judged according to their works. Of course, no person's works are going to be good enough. Paul made that clear in Romans 3, 10 through 20. says, as it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. No one understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become worthless. There is no one who does what is good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They deceive with their tongues. Vipers' venom is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and wretchedness are in their path. And the path of peace they have not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are subject to the law so that every mouth may be shut and the whole world may become subject to God's judgment. That's why God gave the law. For no one will be justified in God's sight by the works of the law because the knowledge of sin comes through the law. Nobody can stand before the great white throne and say, I'm good enough. As God opens the books and judges their works, no, none of us can stand. This is God's righteous judgment being revealed. And verse 15 of Revelation 20 makes it clear that if your name is not found written in the book of life, you are thrown into the lake of fire. Now this judgment is not so that God can determine who is righteous and unrighteous. He already knows that. When a person dies that's an unbeliever, well, or when any person dies, their soul either goes into the presence of God or goes to hell. This judgment at the great white throne displays the declarative glory of God. This is God. This is his glory. This is his judgment being finally declared over everything. This is God saying, there's no more wiggle room. There's no... There's no Lack of justice anymore. This is justice being dealt out. This is God's declarative glory being once and for all finally displayed. There's no arguing it at this point. This is also different than the physical death because this is not simply dealing with the soul, but this is also dealing with the body. In the final judgment, Jesus is declaring the ultimate righteousness and holiness of God, and he's also declaring the ultimate grace and mercy of God. And as sobering as it is, it demonstrates to us that no injustice will go unpunished. Even the martyrs in heaven right now, based on Revelation 6, are crying out for justice. God, how long? How long? They look down on the earth and they see the injustice. They see their fellow brothers and sisters continuing to be martyred for the cause and name of Jesus. And they cry out, how long? And we on earth, we often echo that cry. How long, God? It seems like it's unfair. It seems like wickedness goes unchecked. But this is the moment that reminds us wickedness will for, not forever go unchecked. There will be a moment when justice is dealt with. During the final judgment, verse 14 of Revelation 20 also shows us what else is taking place. We've seen heaven and earth has passed away. Not even heaven and earth can stand before the glory of God. But what about hell? Well, verse 14 shows us that death and Hades are thrown, or hell, depending on your translation, is thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Hell is where the soul of an unbeliever goes when they die. So when a person dies, if they're a believer, their soul goes to heaven, but their body stays in the ground. The unbeliever, their spirit, goes to hell, but their body 
stays in the ground. We see this in Luke 16, 22 through 24. One day the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's side. This is heaven. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torment in Hades, he looked up and saw Abraham a long way off with Lazarus at his side. Father Abraham, he called out, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this flame. Hell is the place of conscious and eternal torment that is thrown into the lake of fire at judgment. And at the final judgment, all the unbelievers' bodies get resurrected, and then they are body and soul cast into the lake of fire. In Revelation 14, we get a picture of this. Revelation 14, 9 through 11, and another, a third angel, followed them and spoke with a loud voice. If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, which is poured full strength into the cup of his anger. He will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the sight of the holy angels and in the sight of the lamb, and the smoke of their torment will go up forever and ever. There will be no rest day or night for those who worship the beast in its image, for anyone who receives its mark, the mark of its name. The angel in Revelation 14 is showing us in part what's happening in Revelation 20. Revelation 20 also shows us that it's, your name's not written in the book of life. Of course, those whose names are found written in the book of life pass into eternal life. Which leads us to our next thought this morning, and that's the eternal state. There are three places in the eternal state. Of course, we've already looked at the lake of fire. This is a place created for the devil and his demons. Revelation 20.10, the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever. 21.8 of Revelation says the cowards and the faithless, the detestable, murderers, sexual, immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their share will be in the part, will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. This is the eternal place of punishment. But as we begin moving into Revelation 21, the main scene is not the place of eternal punishment. It's the new heaven and the new earth. Revelation 21. Flip back there. Let's read verses 1 through 14 again. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them and will be his peoples. And God himself will be with them, and they will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. Then the one seated on the throne said, Look, I am making everything new. He also said to me, Right, because these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and Omega. The beginning and the end, I will freely give to the thirsty from the spring of the water of life. The one who conquers will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But the cowards, faithless, detestable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their share will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then one of the angels who held the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came and spoke with me. Come, I'll show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. 
And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city of Jerusalem coming down from heaven, from heaven, uh, out of heaven from God, arrayed with God's glory. Her radiance was like a precious jewel, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. The city had a massive high wall with 12 gates. Their measurements add up to about 200 feet tall. That's how wide the wall is. 12 angels were at the gates. The name of the 12 tribes of Israel's sons were inscribed on the gates. There were three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. The city had 12 foundations, and the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb were on the foundations. This is the moment we enter into the full enjoyment of life in the presence of God forever. This is the moment when every tear gets wiped away. Think about all the pain and all the hardship. Like the, everything that happens before the return of Christ. All the pain, the persecution, the suffering. Christ returns. It's the final judgment. We enter into the new heaven and the new earth, and we are greeted by Jesus, and he wipes away those tears. Now, I don't know. The Bible doesn't say this, but I like to think we could just give him a hug for about the first thousand years. And as he holds us, that pain just melts and the sorrow melts. And he wipes away every tear. I, my imagination, I, I love these passages because part of me wonders if like when we go into that moment, all the pain that we experience in this earth, it just all comes out. And all the pain, all the tears from all the pain you've suffered your entire life, Jesus just stands there and however long it takes, he just wipes them away. He wipes away all those tears. This is the moment when death is finally once and for all defeated, forever cast into the lake of fire. On the cross, Jesus conquered spiritual death. But at this moment, at the final judgment, Jesus is like, I'm done with physical death too. And there's no more death. No more spiritual death, no more physical death. Death is just not even a part of our, the human experience anymore. This is, as Psalm 16 says, our portion or our cup of blessing, our inheritance. For the believer, this is your birthright. This is what you have coming to you. Now, we often think about eternity. We simply think about heaven, right? Understandably so. If we're going to look at how beautiful the new city is. But this passage also shows us that there's not only a new heaven, there's also a new earth. Creation is going to be made entirely new. Romans 8, 19 through 22 says, For the creation eagerly waits with anticipation for God's Son to be revealed. So creation, the mountains and the forests and the ocean and the trees and everything we see, all of creation, all of nature, even creation is eagerly anticipating God's return. For the creation was subjected to futility. At the curse, creation was also cursed. Creation is under sin, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. We saw that a few weeks ago. That was Adam. In the hope that the one creation itself will also be set free from the bondage to decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. There will be a real physical place. Earth will be completely made new. It'll be real. It'll be physical that we can enjoy with our real physical glorified bodies. As amazing as some of the places on earth are. I mean, imagine standing at the coast. 
just now, imagine standing at the coast, taking in the ocean. And as you stand at the edge of the earth, you're reminded of you, the edge of your limits. And you're, you look out as far as you can see, there's the ocean. And you look out and you see, man, just like I have limits, God is limitless. And as I can't see the edge of the ocean, that's God's grace. That's, I mean, uh, just how amazing it is to stand at the ocean. Imagine standing at the ocean in the new creation where it's perfect, no longer under the curse. The sand between your toes won't irritate you or bother you anymore. As beautiful as places like Yosemite or the Grand Canyon are, as much as we look at those places and are reminded of the glory of its creator, imagine what it's going to be like in the new creation where it's no longer subject to the curse, but it's been redeemed and made new. The eternal state isn't just us as ghosts ethereally floating in the clouds playing on harps for all of eternity. No offense, that sounds kind of (laughs) dumb. It will be just as real and physical and tangible as our life is now, but it'll be perfect. No more weakness. No more pain. No more sickness. No more pollen and allergies. No more crummy Fresno air. Can I get an amen? I won't sound like this in the new earth because I've been outside too long. I cannot wait. Creation and mankind will be as God originally intended. I mean, imagine gardening, if you're into that, with no weeds, no pests. No, man, I hope those tomatoes come in. Man, that one looks a little, like, odd. (laughs) Imagine doing the work of gardening, and it's just all perfect. It's this bountiful harvest that you can enjoy. That's new heaven and new earth. Imagine hiking and never getting tired or sore. You can just go on all day. Imagine running and never running out of breath. Why would you want to walk? Because you can and you've got all of eternity to. There's no rush. (laughs) Imagine being able to swim across the ocean. You're like, hmm, what do I do today? I think I'm just going to swim across the ocean. And you're not worried about getting eaten by a shark. (laughs) You're not worried about getting tired or drowning. I think I'll just swim across the ocean today. I mean, this is the new earth. It's beautiful. It's perfect. It's, exa- it's like Eden, but the whole planet. And we get to exercise dominion perfectly for the glory of God to our internal enjoyment. Man. One of the many mind-blowing things about this passage to me is that the new heaven literally comes down to the new earth. It literally touches down. God sends it down. Now, verse 16 says that the holy city is this giant cube that measures 12,000 stadia. You convert that into our current measurements. It's about 1,400 miles. 1,400 miles wide, 1,400 miles deep, 1,400 miles wide. This thing is huge. This picture shows us what that's going to look like on planet Earth. Think about it. The shortest distance from the surface to the Earth to outer space. So if you're just a straight line, shortest distance from the planet to outer space, it's about 62 miles. So assuming, this is an assumption, the new Earth will be the same size as our current Earth, the holy city is going to stick off our planet by over 1,300 miles. I mean,
mean, this is amazing. This is mind-boggling. Like, we read this, and we're like, I don't know what a city is. That'll be big. It'll probably be neat. But when you actually figure it out, it's like, this is, this is mind-blowingly awesome. This is our inheritance. This is where we get to spend all of eternity. Chapter 22, we haven't even read that, but it gives us a beautiful picture of our city. Flip to 22. Let's read the, just the first five verses. Then he showed me the river of water of life, clear as crystal. I've seen a lot of clear water. I've never seen it clear as crystal. Flowing from the throne of God, that throne that was once the sense of dread and nothing could stand before it because it was just awesomely blinding and wiping out the world's sin and wiping out the curse. That throne is now the source of life. Water, clear as crystal, the water of life flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the city's main street. The tree of life was on each side of the river. So it's one tree, but it's on both sides. I like to picture it as two trunks that kind of come up and the tree just becomes one somewhere in the middle. It's the tree of life on either side of the river bearing 12 kinds of fruit, producing its fruit every month. Every month you get a new fruit. Every month you get a new fruit. That tells us time still exists here. Because every month we get a new fruit. And there's 12 of them. So at the end of the year, it starts all over again. The leaves of the tree are healing for the nations. I don't know what that means, but I love it. <laughs> like, think about the healing that we are going to experience, the healing that the nations are going to experience. It also says healing for the nations. That means all the nations of the world are still going to be there. We, you, you read later, or we read at the end of chapter 21, there's still kings coming. The kings are bringing in their glory. Kings have glory in heaven. Imagine the picture of in your mind what comes to mind when it's a perfect king. Not a corrupt politician. Not a king who does what's best for him. But a perfect king. He's going to come into heaven and he's going to bring his glory. And all the kings of the earth are going to come and bring in their glory. And so we see that there's culture still in heaven. That there's still separate nations in heaven. And because there's no bias anymore, no nation's going to think it's better than the other. But we still get to experience all the beauty and all the distinctiveness of the diversity of all the nations on earth. That means we still get tamales. Amen? <laughs> the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in its city and its servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. Night will be no more. People will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, because the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. Life! Light! Pure, eternal satisfaction. Communion with God. Worship of God. I mean, what we do on Sunday mornings is just a taste. We love it, right? It's great. It's amazing. It strengthens our faith. It reminds us of what we believe. It's how we ascribe glory to God and remind each other of what we believe. But it ain't a drop in the bucket compared to what's going to happen in chapter 22. Healing. Healing. I know we all carry so much hurt. But in this new city, there's going to be healing. Different nations will still be present. Kings will be present. All the distinctive cultures of this earth, individually represented and perfectly renewed. 
I mean, you want to go experience a different culture? Okay, today I'm going to go swim across the ocean and experience African culture. Hmm, maybe tomorrow I'm going to go hike <laughs> and go experience Asian culture. You know, I mean, it's, it's just mind-blowing. And here's the best part. As mind-blowing as all this is, as amazing as all this is, as much as we can't even fathom it, here's the best part. Chapter 21, verse 3. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them. God will be living with us. God will be living with us. After you went for your hike and you experienced some culture, you're like, you know what, I just want to go sit in his presence for the next thousand years. Okay. God will be with us. In the Old Testament, when the glory of God filled the temple, the priests were unable to minister or even stand. Like when his glory came down, they couldn't stand, they couldn't minister. They were knocked down. They were knocked on their backside. Right? At the beginning of Revelation, when John sees this picture of Jesus, he faints as though he was dead. In the New Testament, when the glory of God surrounds the shepherds outside of Bethlehem, they were terrified. But in the heavenly city, <laughs> we will be in his presence. We will be in the presence of his God. And his unfiltered glory and presence will be our joy and our delight and our life. We will experience more fully and we can even imagine now what the psalmist said in Psalm 1611. Psalm 1611b, in your presence is abundant joy, and at your right hand are eternal pleasures. We get tastes of that now, but in the new heaven and the new earth, well, we won't be able to imagine getting it anymore because it's going to be so amazing. This is what we look forward to. This is what we eagerly anticipate. But what about now? Okay, Pastor Nick, all this sounds great. <laughs> but tomorrow morning is Monday, in case you forgot, and I've got to go to work. What do I do now? Again, Peter is helpful. We, we read these verses earlier, but I want to read them again and focus on a different part. Second Peter chapter 3, verses 10 through 13. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. On that day, the heavens will pass away with a loud noise. The elements will burn and be dissolved. And the earth and the works on it will be disclosed. Since all these things will be dissolved in this way, Peter says, it is clear what sort of people you should be in holy conduct and godliness as you wait for the day of God and hasten its coming. So as we conclude, let's look at the response of believers. Peter tells us as we wait, based on everything we just saw, it's clear that we should live holy that we should be holy and godly in our conduct as we wait and hasten this coming day. What does it mean to hasten? Does that mean if we do the right things, we can speed it up? No. <laughs> Jesus made it very clear this is at a fixed point in time that we don't know yet, okay? This is going to happen at a pre, at a, God knows when this is going to happen. It's at a predetermined point. So what does hasten mean? Hasten means, if you look up the Greek word, it just means to earnestly desire. We want it. We look forward to it. There's this eager anticipation, such an eager anticipation that it affects the way we live. Peter's helping us understand that we don't live for this world because it's not going to last. 
Peter's like, it's all going to burn, so don't set all your hopes, don't set all your living, don't live for the things of this world. Live for eternity. We want to, as believers, live for what's going to last. We desire the things of eternity more than we desire the things that are temporal. This drives our holy and godly living. Jesus also gives us helpful encouragement in Matthew 24. Jesus said in Matthew 24, verses 4 through 6, Watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I'm the Messiah, and they will deceive many. You're going to hear of wars and rumors of wars. That is true. <laughs> like, we could, yeah, yeah, absolutely, Jesus. Notice what he says next. See that you are not alarmed. Because these things must take place, but the end is not yet come. Don't be alarmed. Jesus is like, take a breath. Don't freak out. You're going to hear of wars and rumors of wars. Things are going to be rough. Jesus isn't sugarcoating it. He's being real with us. Like, it's going to be tough. You read Matthew 24. There's some tough things we've got to go through. There's going to be wars and rumors of them. A quick glance at world history will show us that there's been at least 138 that we know of. Right? But Jesus tells us, look, don't be alarmed. Our Savior, Jesus, the one who's going to wipe away every tear, is reminding us, don't, don't be alarmed. Don't freak out. <laughs> These things have to happen. But it's not the end yet. It's coming, but it's not yet. So in the meantime, we wait. We live for eternity with eager anticipation. We don't fall into fear because we know this is going to happen. But we also know how the story ends, and it's a beautiful ending. We believe that at the climax of history, Jesus will return to earth to establish his kingdom. We believe in the resurrection of the dead and the final judgment. Those found in Christ will be raised to glorification to forever live and reign with Christ to the eternal glory of God. Satan and his demons and all who have rejected Jesus will be forever separated from God and endure eternal punishment. Evil will be forever abolished and a new heaven and earth will be established to God's eternal glory and his people's eternal delight. Let's pray. Lord, these passages are just so mind-blowing. I pray that as we, now that we've heard your word preached, I pray that we wouldn't just walk out these doors and forget. And I know we all got to go about things that we have to do, but I pray that these truths would go with us. I pray that the reality of what's to come, the new heaven, the new earth, your return, Lord, all of it would go with us as we leave here this morning and that our heart posture would not be one of fear. I pray that as we continue to consider what's going to happen when you come at the climax of history, that it would give us faith, that it would give us strength, that we, like Jesus encouraged us to, would not give in to fear, but that we would eagerly anticipate your return and have hearts that live.